I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theater Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. And I'm Jen Alpoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theater Company. You can also hear my cat. And this is Theater Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theater from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 59 of Theater Forward. 59, and the kitty is very excited about that too. Yes, she's celebrating. So (laughs) this episode is the second installment in our new ongoing series, The Play That Stays. We'll be talking with some of our favorite artists about the production they saw or worked on that has really stuck with them over the years. So first up, we have Brent Hazelton. He's the artistic director of Milwaukee Chamber Theater, a role he took on not too long before COVID shut us all down. And Brent has led that company through some incredibly innovative programming over this past year. And so we are really proud to have him as a colleague here in Wisconsin. Welcome, Brent. Hello, Brent. Hey, Brent. Hello, friends. Thanks for having me. Yes. So for me, the trying to think sort of what, what do we define by staying, right? What do we mean? And the thing that I guess the theater experience that that I always, I don't know, is always foremost in my mind when we think of these things of sort of being memorable or durable, or in this case, maybe a little haunting, um, is actually not a production that ever fully made it to the stage in this context, but was the the first act, not even a full run through, um, but the first act of the production of King Lear that Joe Hanready directed with Jimmy Baker as Lear in uh, 2000, the top of the 2006-2007 season. So uh, the the only part of it that I saw was the first half of the designer run through. Um, and then, you know, took the intermission break and went back up to my desk to do some work. And then in the second act at the, at the very end, uh, Jimmy heard his back and wound up not being able to do the show. And in many ways, that was sort of the end of his career as well. I think he did one more show after that one. But you know, it it was for me still uh, bar none the best performance I've ever seen. Um, I mean, Jimmy was his usual Jimmy self. You know, I mean, he never Jim, Jimmy was not a transformative actor necessarily, but man, he just brought so much absolutely unrelenting human honesty to everything that he did, and to have someone playing that role who was not only the right age for it, but, but at the like full peak of his interpretive powers um, and just hit so many of the, the spaces in his own life. I mean, it was really one of those, those sort of rare alchemical moments where, where the actor does truly disappear into a character and you don't see Jimmy Baker up there at all anymore. And you don't even see your idea, right? Or these received notions we have of these Titanic roles of King Lear. I mean, it was just such a fully human, deep reinvention of the thing. Um, and I remember just that that energy that you have in the rehearsal hall when, when like the first time you touch it, right? And you sort of think, okay, there's our play. There's the thing that we've been working toward. And it just completely changes the trajectory of the process. And it was one of those moments. I just remember being so 
unbelievably excited, not only to see the second half, but to see it with all the tech and on stage and with this massive company of actors. And, you know, the production that ultimately made it up with Mark Corkins as Lear was great. And there were like five or six different Dukes of Albany throughout the run because it was just this understudied domino. Um, but man, that that moment was just that. That was just the most transcendent hour I think I've ever spent watching anything theatrically. Um, and and like 12 people saw it. And I guess for me, one of the reasons it sticks with me longest is for, for most of my life, I've had a really, really hard time with the ephemeral nature of what we do. And the older I get, the more I'm making my peace with it. But the fact that, you know, if, if something's great, it's just the people in the room who are witnessed do it. It's never going to be captured again. It's never going to come back around again. That moment will never exist. Um, and sort of the, you know, this idea that maybe the best performance of Hamlet ever took place on a college campus in Western Oklahoma with eight people in the audience, you know, um, just these, how do we, how do we sort of capture and, and record our own greatness um, when the work is really, really great, other than Moments like this, right, where we get to retell a story of something that really moved us, um, or the way we sort of take those moments and move them into our own work and try to, you know, build on those moments moving forward. But it was really just, just the, the greatest performance I think I've ever seen, and just feel so deeply honored and privileged to have been in the room for it and to have experienced those, those minutes and moments. And I wish I could have seen Act Two so badly. <sighs> yeah. So that's it. That's my story. That's the play that stays for me. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. And beautiful. what you are absolutely right, the ephemeral um, nature of our craft. But this was especially short lived. And, uh, you know, the fact that it was the designers, you know, some of the crew, probably staff. And that was it. So what a what a precious time and moment that you you got to experience. Yeah, and I was in there on a whim. You know, at that time I was running the intern program. That was the first show of the season. So we were sort of, you know, training and involving this new group of interns for the first time. So I was really in the room just to make sure that those guys were holding up their end of it. You know, I wasn't even really in the room to see anything other than how's how's my team doing on this thing and. Uh, yeah, a sort of a, a total kind of whim freak thing that I even had the time to be in there for it. You know, the, the reason Brent, I wrote for as long as I did um, in, in a situation, which is just idiotic. I mean, theater criticism is, is, is nonsense in so many ways because it's so reductive, but it's that my version of that haunting sense of the ephemerality of what we do and wanting a record, um, you know, and I keep telling people one of these days, I, I so badly want to be involved in writing an oral history of the theater of my generation in Wisconsin, because you have legends like uh, Mr. Baker, who just for me were so formative in, in the years when I was starting to see theater um, in Milwaukee. And you just give me chills remembering him. And I'm going through in my mind some of the wonderful performances I saw him, saw him given. There's just so many folks like that whose stories deserve to be remembered in ways you've helped us remember this one. I'm just, God, I'm grateful for this, this story. Yeah, I love that you used a couple times the word privilege too, because that's how I feel as, as the folks who not just go and watch theater, but have the privilege of getting to work on it. 
we do sometimes have access to those magical moments um, that might get repeated on a stage in front of an audience and might not. And so I, I'm always trying to remind myself to be grateful for what I get to see in the rehearsal room. And it is that, you know, the, the thing we always talk about, about trying to be in the moment at all times, right? And as soon as you observe yourself being in the moment, you're no longer in the moment, like, you know, this Heisenberg principle of theater making. But the, it, it, it really, they are gifts and they are privileges because you never know when they're going to pop up. You never know when they're going to happen. And as soon as you start predicting it, then you know it's never going to happen because you're taking yourself out of the space in which it can happen. But yeah, it's just that constant thing we're always trying to do of just stay, stay in the now, stay in the now, stay in the now. And for, for people like Mike and me, and this is a thing that I talk about with our associate artistic director, Marcella Kearns, very often, who sort of has the same brain in this way. But for those of us who are, who are archivists and who are recorders sort of by nature, Right. I'm, I'm a history major. So I come to this work from that perspective of like having to tell and capture stories. It's, it's really hard when you want to archive everything to sometimes just stay in a moment and be and do nothing else, but just be with it and experience it. Um, and I find the really, truly great performances or great experiences take us or take me at least to that place of being, um, I remember, you know, in college took a, a trip to England for a month. Uh, and saw, had the really great privilege of seeing a lot of first productions in that two weeks of some really pretty incredible pieces of theater. One of which was the first production of Beauty Queen of Lanann when, when like nobody knew what this play was, like it's, you know, in the basement theater. And, and I just remember having this moment where I'm watching this play and completely losing sense that there is anyone else in that theater other than me and the actors on stage. Just this, this sort of beautiful tunnel vision where like the rest of the room gets tuned out and you're just so focused in on, on what's going on. And that was the, you know, the, I can count sort of on one hand, the number of times I think that's happened to me in a theater, but, but that Lear run through was definitely one of them, you know, this space that I was super familiar with people that I'm super familiar with. Like, I swear, like the lighting changed in the room, you know, just like, like Jimmy's making this spotlight underneath these awful fluorescents and yeah. just, just being in that moment, you know, is really, I don't know. Those, those are the things that really tell me when it's really working in the way that we all strive to, you know, to, to get to that sort of 1% at the very far side of the bell curve. Brian Mani is an actor seen in many forward productions over the years and is a core company member at American Players Theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Now we know he is quite the storyteller. Uh, so looking forward to hearing his play that stays. Uh, there are so many uh, because they happen um, every few years. There's a play that sticks or elevates my art or my, or deepens my appreciation for my craft. But I have to go back to near the beginning. Um, I was just out of high school. Uh, I had done two plays in high school. Um, I kind of got weaseled into doing my first one and, uh, uh it was a musical, uh, Little Abner and, uh, and then South Pacific, my senior year, I got out of high school, didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and a cousin of mine and a friend of mine saw me that summer and they said, Hey, there is a production of Man of La Mancha that's going to be done in the local community theater 
uh, community uh, college in Freeport, Illinois. Why don't you go, you know, because you had some fun doing those shows. And I didn't, I, I loved the music, I loved singing, but I I had no idea I was going to go into theater. And so I auditioned, I got the smallest role in the show. And um, every night um, when the, well, there was no curtain, but uh, we had this beautiful set. And every night I was uh, up at the top of the stairs as uh, Don Miguel de Cervantes and Sancho were being led out to to face the uh, the Spanish Inquisition. And um, at the end of that show, the impossible dream begins to be sung one by one by members of the of the uh, of the of the cast. And I was one of the last ones to rise and I was in the back and I got to see the cast, the set, the audience. And I bawled my eyes out every night. I just couldn't contain myself and nothing. I get that way right now thinking about it. Um, Nothing in my life had ever hit me that hard before. and uh, there was a tradition at this theater of people coming back to the back hallway to congratulate you. And and um, it was very homey. And I wanted no part of that because I was still recovering. I was still um, back in the dressing room uh, trying to clear myself up. And I was just emotionally charged by it. And um, I would try to sneak out. I would wait till the crowd thinned out and I would slip out a back side door and so Man of La Mancha really shook me and uh, it prompted me then to take some acting classes and a dance class. And that's how I both got into theater and any kind of higher education. Cause I think at that point I was probably going to be a farmer or a factory worker and um, you know, find a gal to, to uh, hook up with and, and start a family. I had no plans and, uh, that's what started it off for me. So, haha, it's not all that long. <laughs> um, but rich. Ah, uh, beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, it's and I made lifelong friends in that show and um it's it was amazing. Uh uh I I I got a chance when I was in high school, uh we studied that play, that story. Uh, in an English class, and um, and then my senior year, I think Richard Kiley. Uh, this is in the I, so I graduated in the spring of '78. So somewhere in that school year, Richard Kiley was bringing the show back, and he was going through Chicago in their trials and tryouts, you know, t- to get it ready for Broadway. So I got to see Richard Kiley in his second time around playing Don, Quix- Don Quixote, and. Um, riveted me and I never thought that I would ever get a chance to do it. Uh, so it was pretty, it was deep. Well, you know, for, for somebody who goes into this profession, it's above and beyond all the ways in which it would resonate with anyone, because it's such a beautiful story about, about swimming against the current and trying to be heard it's got to speak to you, must have spoken to you on some sort of visceral level. I mean, this is what actors do. You're dreaming the impossible dream every day in the sense that you're telling stories and speaking truths. Yeah. Sometimes people don't want to hear. Yeah. 
Well, like in the play, uh, uh, Cervantes, you know, engages all the prisoners to participate and they their eyes get opened up. And that's what happened to me. The play itself opened my eyes up to um, the possibilities and the power of theater and live performance. Um, so, yeah, it was incredible. I'm sure I don't, I'm sure everyone's got some kind of story like that. Um, but that's mine. I. Well, that's the purpose of this uh, little uh, interview series is yeah. to hear hear everybody's story. But oh my goodness, I got the I got the goose flush just listening to you. Telling well, I'd it. been I'd been an athlete in high school, and um, I knew what performance was in that way. I knew what it was like to be depended on and to depend on other people. And I played football and basketball and baseball, and I ran in track, and I just I did everything that I could, and I felt. All that was taken away when I got out of high school because I wasn't, you know, I was not going to go be a professional athlete. Um, so that 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 stage of performance was gone from my life. And um, I think I think theater took it and took me along with it. Joe Serqua is a composer and sound designer based in Chicago. He's a faculty member at Columbia College and the co-artistic director of Cirque Rivera Dance Theater. He's also worked with Forward during every single season since its founding. Hey, so my uh, the show that stuck with me that really got me into the business was a production of Miss Lulu Bet. I saw that um, when I was uh, in my 20s. I, I was a band leader at the time. And uh, a friend of mine, Jim Lemming, was in the show. It was done by a theater uh, that is now no longer with us, but Center Theater, which was a, a theater that I actually ended up becoming um, the resident composer and sound designer uh, many years after I saw the show. But I saw Miss Lulu Bet. Um, I went with a bunch of friends. Um, I was... Uh, stoned out of my mind, <laughs> which was, you know, typical for me at that time and typical for me at this time. Um, uh, and I was just so enchanted by it. It's a, it's a lovely play about a woman seeking love. And uh, in the end, it doesn't really work out for her. My friend Jim Lemming was playing uh, the person who was uh, trying to pick up on her. Um, and uh, like I said, it was just beautiful. The set was just a uh, the set was just the front. Uh, uh, it was the front porch of the house that uh, Lulu Bet was staying in, and um, I I was just so moved by it. I don't uh, and 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 I've been you know ever since then. It, it's the kind of theater that I love to do. The the kind of theater that's uh, about people and and about relationships and 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 at the time that that actually moved my career as far as being a band leader in a completely different direction because after seeing the show and this was in the 80s um we my band was playing all of my original music and uh at that particular time in the clubs in chicago if you weren't playing dance music you were nothing um and i was uh, i mean if you've ever seen me dance <laughs> not pretty um which doesn't explain how I ended up marrying a dancer, but hey. Uh, so I, I started hiring actors and dancers uh, to be part of the band. 
so that I didn't have to write dance music. We gave people something to watch. Uh, and then, and that way I, I could continue to write the music that I wanted to write. And my music at that particular time was all about storytelling. So it worked out. It, it was really a beautiful marriage, which then led me to doing my first play, which was a Midsummer Night's Dream with a company called the Chicago Shakespeare Company. And I, I wrote that music and I played it live. I actually ended up, uh, it, they did a production out in the park. And then in the fall after that, they did a production inside a theater and, I, and they actually cast me as a fairy, which makes perfect sense when you think about it. Um, but yeah, and, and one of the actresses in that show was Jane Lynch, who ended up being in my band. After that, after after we did that production together, um, she, we became very close friends, and she joined the band and and would do all the female vocals in my band, um, and then and then she went on to do this production of uh, they were doing the Brady Bunch live at a comedy place in Chicago, and they would do the episodes word for word, and I ended up playing a little bit for that as well. Um, and then I did this show called The Sound of a Voice, which is a Henry David, David Henry Huang play um, uh, about a witch and a warrior. And I played that show live and I was playing a um, <clears throat> at the time I, I wrote it. I was singing. I was I was playing the tracks, which was something that was brand new to the world. <clears throat> and I was playing one of the very first MIDI saxophones. Which, which, which looked like this thing out of Star Wars um, and had the cheesiest sounds in the world. But if you put a lot of delay and a lot of reverb, it sounded really, really cool. Um, so I was scantily clad, um, hanging in this cage above the stage. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's where I was playing the show from. And I, I won a Jefferson Award in Chicago for that. And then after that, my career kind of just took off um but yeah i owe it all to miss lulu Bet. oh i love that oh i can picture all of it joe <laughs> it's so interesting to hear how people get into uh into theater into their their jobs that they have now and what the what the process is how interesting that you sort of fell into this joe i had oh. i had thought that this was you know, from from a young age, this was what you wanted to do. And that was not true. No, as a boy, I mean, as a young boy, my my parents were not theater people. My father was a jazz musician, um, but he never quite figured out how to make a make a living at it. I mean, he, he actually toured, but he always had a side gig as either a bartender or a truck driver. But they were not theater going people. So my first my very first theater experiences were were in were in grade school. And uh, I remember loving the puppet theater and the darker, the better. I just loved the puppet <laughs> theater stuff that would come um, and not being all that entranced by the live theater. It was uh, I remember as a boy just thinking it was a little a, a little hokey. But uh, again, it was the production of Miss Lulu Bet that just touched my heart. 
You know, it's it's interesting, um, Joan, one of the ones we already recorded this morning, we talked about the ephemerality of theater. And I'm, I'm so grateful to you for mentioning Centered Theater and for just sort of, you know, summoning back and conjuring in, in this time when so much has been lost, um, you know, a place that was really important for a lot of people, um, you know, in early stages of their careers and did a lot of really great work. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, Dan Lamort was the artistic director. Uh, Dale Calandra was, the, I think, the associate artistic director. I mean, at one point in my life, I had uh, my studio was in the basement of Center Theater. Wow. Mm. When I was when I was going through uh, my my divorce and didn't really have anywhere to 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 hang my hat uh, as far as the work that I was doing. But I did. Uh, God, I did so many plays with that show. That's where I met Martha Levy. She was a teacher there and she and she was really Martha was so important in my career and getting me over at Steppenwolf, which was which was huge. Mm. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe Circo, for sharing. I just love that story. Every (laughs) single bit of it. It uh, it explains a lot, too. (laughs) (laughs) Demonte Henning is a director and actor based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's acted in several forward shows, and he was my co-director on our recent production of The Niceties. Monte is the founder and artistic director of Lights, Camera, Soul, and he's also the host of the fantastic Blacker the Berry podcast, so you really should check that out. Tell us your story, Devante. Yeah, so my story begins, um, I was a student at Milwaukee High School of the Arts um, in the theater department, and we would see shows constantly all throughout the year at several of the professional companies in Milwaukee, and Uh, That stayed with me. It was a big part of my development as an actor to see, uh, in my perspective, um, actors who I thought that had mastered their craft. Um, But this particular play, uh, I remember it was my first time at this theater, um, a very well-known theater in Milwaukee. And a lot of the students were, you know, talking and were loud and just, they just weren't focused. And for me, sometimes I, I like to, I can be a loner sometimes. I, I kind of like to, you know, do my own thing sometimes. And I remember um, we had the upstairs balcony was completely ducked off for us. And so I remember just getting up and removing myself from the group and just sitting by myself off to the side to watch this play because I really wanted to watch these actors on stage. And it was uh, a very important moment for me because I, I got to watch them, uh, them, them act. I got to see all of the details of how, how committed they are to their characters as they walk off stage, you know, I was looking for what would they drop their character. Um, you know, I got to see different facial expressions, and that, that was very important for me as an actor because, um, like I said, it was watching them uh, work. People who I thought that had mastered their craft, um, it, it kind of gave me guidance to see this is what you want to do. This is how you want to act, and this is what you want to. Um, performing. So whenever I, I work at this theater, I always sit in that spot just as a reminder um, to, to see, just to remind myself that, you know, I'm, I'm always a student in this, in this, uh, this, this game of theater, this, this career of theater, and there's always, you know, work to be done. Um, 
that was something that that has stuck with me throughout my uh, entire career. Um, and and uh, I, I guess that's that's my story. Oh, I can I can just picture it. I'm picturing, you know, teenage you <laughs> sitting up there and now yeah. coming back as a just really accomplished actor and director and trying to keep that sense of wonder kindled. Yeah. And it's, it was, it was a simple moment, but it, it was very impactful. Um, it's, it was, it, it, you know, when you reached out to me, I was, that was, this was the story that, that first came to mind because I think it was probably my, one of my first times seeing, uh, being at a professional play. And it, it just really stuck with me. And I, I really appreciate Milwaukee High School of the Arts because we would see at least five shows a year. I remember one day we saw uh, two shows, like we did a, a whole day of theater where we went to one theater and we saw a show and then we went to another one and we saw a show and we didn't get back to the school until about five o'clock. Um, but it was, it, it just really, and I, I don't think that I would have the same appreciation for live theater, the same appreciation for um, plays had it not been for that experience at Milwaukee High School of the Arts. Oh, every high school should yeah. should be able to do that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, it was awesome working with you as a assistant director, DeMonte, when you were uh, Jim in, in Big River. And I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, we would be there for those performances. Uh, in the morning, <laughs> you know, <Right>. and uh, <laughs> so you know, you got these actors that are out there at like you know ten, eleven o'clock, and it's filled with. It was so inspiring to to see first mm-hmm. stage in that context, just filled with young people, um, you know, who are, you know, many of them experiencing a play for their first time. I remember in that particular mm-hmm. show being grossed out by the idea of a of a kiss uh, on, on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but for them to have the yeah. privilege, if, if there were one or two of them in that audience, watching what you did in that role and with that character and being able to see somebody take a part and give it the dignity and the respect um, and the moral force that you did. There's another DeMonte, you know, 20 years from now, who's going to be able to look back and tell a story like the one that, that, that you just told because of you and because First Stage made that possible. Agree. Absolutely. And that is why I don't take those situations lightly. You know, there is a big responsibility that we have, especially with working with our youth, because, you know, they're the next generation. And, you know, that impact has stuck with me. And so I, I don't take that responsibility lightly. It's it's a uh, it's an honor. Well, that shows in all Wonderful. of your work. It really does. Thank you. Does. Well, thank, thank you. you for sharing that. I just that's yeah. beautiful. Perfect story. And it's always good to go with the first one that pops into your mind. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's that's the way to approach this. I love exactly. It. Yeah. That is all for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Upoff Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, as always. And you can follow us or share your thoughts, as always, on Facebook or Instagram. That's at Theater Forward, as always. With <laughs> and if you enjoyed this podcast, as always, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. 
be sure to leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. We're very grateful to have you listening, and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.